I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond in order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. Welcome back. I am so excited to have Sarah Payton here on the podcast. She is a certified trainer of nonviolent communication and neuroscience educator, and she integrates the brain science and the use of resonant language to awaken and sustain self-compassion, particularly in the face of difficult issues like self-condemnation, self-disgust, and self-sabotage. She teaches and lectures internationally and is the author of the Your Resonant Self book series, and she is also the co-author along Roxy Manning, PhD, of the Anti-Racist Heart a self-compassion and activism handbook. And I was able to also interview Dr. Manning. So we'll be able to link that below and get a really full rich sense of the work y'all are doing together. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jill. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so I, I'm, before we even start, do you have a background in neurolinguistic programming? I'm just kind of, as I'm looking no. at your bio, your, your bio, it kind of sounds like a lot of work that my partner does. And oh, that's, that's so cool. Yeah, okay. I, I, uh, I, my background is really this new field of relational neuroscience. What the heck are the fMRIs discovering about what our brains do in relationship? And how can those of us who are not neuroscientists, which is me, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm just a passionate, interested person who ended up writing about it and teaching about it. Um, how can we use this information to to um I kind of want to say in this moment hack our brains but that's just <laughs> that's a little uh that's a little tech like a technology metaphor and I really see our brains much more as gardens so how to cultivate how to nourish a really sweet place to live in our own brains including systemically which is you know how to learn about systemic racism and how to how to grapple with climate crisis and the effects of unequal effects of climate crisis. I mean, all of this stuff starts to come up as you begin to look at brains. That is so fascinating. So how did you like, can you share a little bit about your, your background, not, not necessarily your biography background, but your, your upbringing and, and what brought you yeah. into this work? Yeah. I grew up in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska and um and the inequality there was uh, stunning with the way that folks who who were Aboriginal to that earth were treated uh, when I was little. I was born in 1962. And so that was like a, was like a, a constant humming in the background of, of like, well, why the heck are we the way we are? Mm -hmm. And then I also, my, people traveled in the 1960s in part to Fairbanks, Alaska, to get away from difficult family situations in the lower 48. And there wasn't much contact. There was there were letters and telephone calls were terribly expensive. 
<laughs> so it was like this community of people who really wanted it to be true that they had escaped their families, including my parents, while they were bringing intense trauma with them. So my mom had had intense trauma before the age of three and had dissociative identity disorder as a result of that. And then I was growing up trying to figure out how not to feel like I was crazy. And so uh, as I as I got older and and um, kind of when I was about eight or nine years old, I was like totally into psychology and I found this book and it said, whatever's happened to you before you're three years old, that's what sets you in stone. And you, you just stuck with it for the rest of your life. And I was like, oh no. So I tried to just figure out how to live with my, you know, early trauma being set in stone until I was in my forties when I stumbled across this gorgeous new field of research, which was about, which was relational neuroscience, how we change each other's brains. And then I was like, I, I just, I was like, I had uh, fireworks, you know, lit under me. Because <laughs> it's so exciting to me that we have more choice and that we can change one another and that we can bring self-compassion to our difficult brains. I love that because I think about neuroplasticity yeah. and I've always thought of it in the context of shifting our own brain or using practices to shift our own brain. I love this relational component that it's not just within ourselves, but we can do that with each other. Yeah. And, and kind of with that, as you start to work with personal trauma, because that's sort of my path was personal trauma and then like a political and systemic and ecological awakening of like going oh I've been in a trance state I did I didn't realize that I was participating in white supremacy I didn't realize that I was participating in the climate crisis uh, you know I, I was recycling for god's sake I was you know <laughs> sort of like that that experience of uh, of people going well, I, I, I marched in Selma. <laughs> what do you mean I could be participating in white supremacy? You know, so there's such an interesting challenge that lies before us to find, you know, to find that intense self-compassion that allows us to actually look at the world as it is. Mm -hmm. And that's what the book is really inviting. That's so beautiful. I feel like I come up against that a lot, like older white folks like I know all there is to know about racism because I did such and such back then. And it is very clear to me in my ex in encounters with them and interactions with them that that is not the case, but like the conversation just gets shut down because it's like, this is the way it is done. So how do you, how do you, I'm so curious to hear how you use self-compassion and relational neuroscience to, I don't know, mitigate is the right word there, but to, to cross that invite yeah <laughs> I love that right um uh, I love what Roxy says she's like call, calling people in is one of her one of the phrases mm -hmm. that she loves and works with a lot like how do we really invite people to step forward um for me a part of it is like awakening people's sense of curiosity about the systems that we live in and and trying as much as possible to name 
what happens for our bodies when we discover that things are not going as well as we would like them to go. Because a, a lot of us will kind of turn into a, 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 a bit of denial um, in order to be able to manage the stress of it. My, my working hypothesis is, since I found it in myself, is that many of us have what I call do no harm vows. We yeah. have contracts with ourselves, not, not to be harm doers. So the information that we are participating in harm is unbearable. And I think about this a lot with uh, this modern backlash against critical race theory and the recent decision in Texas to completely disallow any federal agency or state agency to have even a DEI department. Right. I often think about the 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 longing uh, to have their to have there be like almost like to have there be something good in the world. So we're going to legislate it. We're going to make it. We're going to legislate that the world is good mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of actually looking at the statistics and going, oh, this is not good. Let's see what we can do to make it better. Yeah. And there's a groundedness to being able to really see the world as it is. That is um that is really sweet to live with and and brings a lot of kind of a capacity for gallows humor and an ability to really mobilize for change and to to listen carefully to the continually changing landscape and and to 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 try to find expression i mean i think this is the thing that that is needed is for everybody to find the expression that that is needed to come from them to change the world mm-hmm. instead of trying to change the world um to to pretend to make everybody pretend that it's okay right right so it sounds like you're you're allowing people the space to be just like where they are and not having to like pretend, not having to yeah, pretenses yeah. or performative or anything, just this is where we're at, what next kind of thing. But also to talk with people about like, is it possible that you have a do no harm vow mm-hmm. that's preventing you? Because it's not possible to live in the world and do no harm. Right. So if we have a contract with ourselves, I mean, I, I write a lot about these unconscious agreements procedural agreements that we make kind of even below the level of the limbic system we make these agreements with ourselves to behave in certain ways that end up being very self-sabotaging and sabotaging of the world so i'm i'm like so interested do you have a contract that says i sarah solemnly swear to my essential self that i will never do any harm i will never do any harm most of us have this. This is something that we want really badly. We want to live in the world and do no harm. So what happens if we have this undoable, unlivable contract is that we can't learn anything about the systems as they are. We can't we yeah. can't look at them and say, oh, here I am, I'm white. 
and people who are white have received so much more traditionally from the government um you know and and i continue to to read and learn and watch videos and talk to people most recently i just it took me some months to integrate the horror of um the understanding that that redlining was actually legislated mm -hmm. that, that the government itself was saying no we will not lend to we will not fund mortgages for we will not provide mortgage insurance we will not support people of color african-american people in particular to to have houses to have homes i mean and then of course all of the cascading after effects of of the decades and decades that we lived with this legislation, with this federally mandated systemic racism. I mean, it's horror to learn about that stuff. Yeah. How the heck do we integrate knowing that we live in a system which has legislated evil and inequality? It is hard going, it is a hard slog. And as long as we have a do no harm contract, then we, then we have to pretend it's not true. Mm -hmm. So this is where my deepest interest is in. It's in like, when we talk to people about do no harm contracts, can they begin to catch a glimpse of the ways that they hide from the truth of what's going on in this world? It's so, I love it. And I also wonder what react, I mean, because the work I do also, I want to get people in their bodies to feel the defensiveness and to feel the whatever. And I find that some, all of us, many of us are so disembodied, not, and I was five years ago. I was like, what do you mean feeling an emotion in my body? So for pe for people to recognize the feeling of when we're realizing what we've, you know, been complicit in, how do you, how do you coach people into Without giving away your trade secrets, of course, but no, no, I don't really have any trade secrets. I'm happy to talk about anything. <laughs> I try everything. Try everything. Um, one of the things that's very sweet for human bodies is that they do easily have shared experiences, and this, I think, is reflected in the most powerful and beautiful speeches that political leaders have made you know, in the in the 19th and 20th centuries, and hopefully there will be more in the 21st century. But th there are ways that we can capture and name collective experience in ways that move people forward instead of moving people deeper into denial. So the mo so we see in political leaders the use of language that mobilizes people in really negative ways. We see the mobilization of disgust in in the encouragement of racism and the current encouragement of white supremacy. And we see the mobilization of denial in the legislation to both um, manage and dismiss and erase critical race theory and in the and in the desire to make abortion mm -hmm. illegal and to to manage and dismiss women's bodies from the discourse altogether. So we see that kind of that kind of expression happening. 
And and then the other kind of expression is really needed, like an expression that says, you know, to the collective or or to the personal. So it can happen one to one or it can happen in workshops or it can happen in public speeches to say, this is hard. Would you like a little acknowledgement that you worry that you that you love people and you don't want it to be true that things are as unequal as they are mm-hmm. and that there's been a historical weight of legislation and government decision making that has supported and maintained systemic racism of course you don't want to know that of course nobody wants to know that and if we start to realize oh it's not it's not me sarah personally who has enacted systemic racism although i have you know personally also done that but but more importantly, my, com- like you used the word complicit, my complicit engagement in this system is actually important. And maybe it's possible for me to at least take some action against the complicit engagement yeah. in white supremacy. Yeah. Do you do work with primarily with people who identify as white or who who do you tend to work with generally my um audience is um probably 90% white it's my audience is probably 90% white cisgendered women mm-hmm. who uh who are between the ages of 50 and 90 <laughs> That this beautiful, sweet audience that just has so much love in it and, you know, wants to know this stuff and struggles with it. And but really, you know, folks come to me because they've lived through so much trauma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then the other 10 percent of folks who come and, and find me are folks who are global majority people, folks who are trans folks who are lbgtq and and um and there and and it's it's quite a it's quite a lovely lovely audience so so it's so important to work with the with the folks who've never open who never had the opportunity to be in community before Mm -hmm. never made the opportunity to be in community before with folks who are so different and f- different from them. And so there's a, a really, th- there's both a, a hell of a lot of of open-hearted desire um, not to be in denial. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, like just the other day, <laughs> just the other day, my friend used the word, and I, and I just, I mean, I, I myself, have spent periods of time in my life when I'm vegan but I received a, a letter just the other day from somebody who was evangelical in their commitment and they were like I will not study with you unless you are vegan and I was like well I tried that but my hair fell out they're like you can't pay any attention to your hair falling out you just have to be vegan because it's the right thing to do so so people come or people come and say you know you're talking about systemic racism I can't bear it I'm not going to be part of your classes and I'm like well okay you know let's acknowledge your experience and I'm not going to stop talking about systemic racism so that doesn't sound like it's a good fit 
how, how do you, um, and so I want to talk about the book. So maybe we can start there. I also would love to know other ways that you work with people because it sounds like you do one-on-one -on -one or group work as well. Um, but let's let's make sure I want to get to the book now because it's amazing and uh, I think really important uh, piece of literature. It's not even literature because it's a, a handbook, but whatever we, call, we might call it, Thank it's you. an important work and um, I'm really excited to talk about that. So can you share a little bit about the background and, and maybe how you... Yeah. As I started to become more aware systemically, I became more and more aware of the work of Roxy Manning, who was a guest, Dr. Manning, who was a guest on your show some weeks ago. And um, and so I called her up and I said, Roxy, it seems like, you know, your work is so beautiful and I'd love to, I'd love to mix up with you and make a book together that offers people the grounded care and comprehensive acknowledgement of everyone's experience combined with the steady and fierce invitation to people to come and participate in change. I'd like to bring the neuroscience of self-compassion into that because it just seems like an important mix for me. And she said, oh, Sarah, I'd love to do a book with you. And I need to write my own book first. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so I said, well, heck, let's mobilize my, uh, my relationship with publishers and see if we can, because I have a couple books under my belt. Let's see if we can get some people to publish both your book and my book. So then we went, you know, to town trying to do that. <laughs> went through a number of publishers and then Roxy found a publisher who was willing to take the risk on these two books now Roxy's book and then the which is how to have anti-racist conversations and then our shared book which is the anti-racist heart which is about these self-compassion questions and um and then but they wouldn't take the book unless we fundraised buyers and so Roxy did this fabulous Kickstarter program and we got enough people who were sort of subscribers to promise that they want to buy the book that the publishing company Barrett Kohler, which is in the Bay Area. That's um, interesting. Yeah, decided to go ahead with our project and I'm so grateful that they did. And I'm so grateful to Roxy because she really, you know, I, I came with the invitation and she took the ball and ran. How, how, um, one of the things that my partner and I talk about who she's a black woman, we talk a lot about our dynamic and our relationship and the way we kind of hold ourselves accountable, um, when white supremacy shows up, which it always does. How do you, how, how what's the dynamic of y'all's relationship and, and, and how do you keep yourself or keep each other accountable to having these conversations? Well, one of the precepts that I'm working with is that, you know, I don't, I don't come with any belief that I, you know, I don't, I don't have any conviction that I have anything to any ground to stand on when it comes to talking about white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what I'm so interested in is is learning 
and each time that we that we are in conversation or it each time that we're working on uh on a project together you know that then whenever she can give feedback i'm i'm just really grateful for it because i think i often think about myself as a white person in this arena as that ch- you know that child's game where you're playing blind men's buff and you have a blindfold and you're just try you're you're trying to play tag i have you know the way that privilege impacts brains is it makes them blind it truly does there's all kinds of research that shows that if we have in any area where we have privilege we won't even perceive and read the facial expressions of the people around us who have less privilege in that area. So if I'm in the world of systemic racism, I'm not going to know anything. That's fascinating. If I'm uh, an able-bodied person in a world of folks who are working with mobility stuff, I don't know anything. There's no ground to stand on. And And a part of what I need to do and and I have to work on it because I really want to know things. I really want to know what the right thing to say is. I really want to know how to avoid the embarrassing pitfalls of privilege blindness. But I can't know. I have to continue to be in relationship. I have to continue to learn because not only is there more to learn about this person, who I'm in relationship with, there's more to learn systemically. And then the whole world of, of anti-racist action is also continually growing and developing as we discover more impacts of colonialism and white supremacy. And so something that I said two years ago is no longer, mm-hmm. it, it's no longer current with what's happening now. So I, that, this is why self-compassion is so key. I mean, it's you can't move even a step without it, or you, you just start getting pissed off and grumpy and just want the world to stay the same. How, how is it for you to hear this? What's it like for you in terms of your relationship with your partner? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... I appreciate everything you're saying, and I, I want to come back to the self-compassion aspect of it. Um, I th- her and I talk a lot about the characteristics of white supremacy culture and how we want to call it white supremacism instead of white supremacy, but like how how they show up. And when we're having like a a dynamic, like if one of us is like miffed about something or whatever, we'll just bring it out into the space, and it's just taken a while to. I mean, it's like the deepest, deepest trust that I think either one of us have ever really had, um, at least for me in a friendship, um, to just be like, this is upsetting me. And then for her to be like, this is how it's landing for me. And for me to say, oh my God, that's paternalism or, oh my God, that's, you know, and to see it. And for me, it like kind of unlocks the, the, I don't want to say the mystery because that's, it's belittling the, but it's, it's unlocking my understanding of unlocking the blindness yeah yeah and and then it makes then I'm not like then I'm not mad anymore and then I realize it's me on this some level that I wasn't seeing and and but we do it in a way that's very um 
honest and vulnerable and um and like on very deep level so so i'm i think we're, we've both expressed to each other how grateful we are to have that and and not everybody gets to have that you know like you have yeah. to and, and, and have the that connection and that desire to do it but mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's very go ahead it, it's i was just i was just thinking about how you know and and you'll learn one thing from somebody you know that you're in relationship with and then you'll somebody else will come and they won't like that thing they won't like that way of using language mm-hmm. they won't like that way of thinking about it they're and and they also have, it's sort of like um there's an invitation to honoring each person and the flexibility mm-hmm. that's really important like we've had community members i run online classes a lot we've had community members request BIPOC only spaces or global majority only spaces where people can have a breakout room where it's just mm-hmm. and they don't have to have that they can they don't, it's an optional it's totally optional but if somebody wants it that if, if at least two people want it then we can create a breakout room that's global majority only yeah then we'll get people who are global majority folks who hate that they're like this is so offensive to me that you're even offering this and you're using these words and you're singling out global majority. Why aren't you offering this for anybody who has an identity that they would like some mm. support around? And, to, and it's just like, uh, those the, the thing of not being able to do it right for everybody all the time is part of our do no harm contract, right? So, so it's, it almost physically hurts that there would be more than one response to an action that I'm proposing. Like it, like some people like the book, some people don't like the book. That's almost physically painful. Right. And so this is another place where we need, we need self-compassion to go, to gather up the little ones inside of ourselves and hold them and say, oh yeah, of course it's course you want to be able to just make everybody feel comfortable wouldn't that be a beautiful impossible dream (laughs) Uh, talk a little bit more about self-compassion like kind of basics because I think a lot of people might hear it and make assumptions about what it is or is it yeah Yeah. so what's so interesting about research into self-compassion is that it it diminishes stress for everybody everywhere turns out that much of our stress is comes from inside of us that we want to be able to make money we want to be able to have ease we want to be able to provide for our families we want to be able to get the education we want to be you know there's all those things that we want to be able to do that life may or may not have given us access to and um and so this, the huge part of the stress that we experience is this, this chasm between what we wish we could do and who we wish we were and who we actually are and what we've actually been able to do. Mm-hmm. And the more that we have a self-compassion, which is kind of an inner voice that says, that has the capacity to say to us, 
course she's struggling. It makes total sense given the context of your life that you're struggling. The more we have that inner voice that's going, yeah, this is hard. The more we can, uh, the, the lower our stress levels are and the better our immune system response is. And the more control control we have, the more choice we have about how we express our emotions. So if we're trying to live in a world without an inner voice that's going, oh, Sarah, honey, um, then we slip very easily into a kind of a drivenness and a harshness with ourselves and with others that doesn't leave any room for the self-warmth that lets us walk through really complex, difficult experiences. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people get afraid that self-compassion means that, so as a white person, that my self-compassion would be like, oh, Sarah, of course this is hard. You don't have to do anything about systemic racism. <laughs> well, I think that's more denial than self-compassion. <laughs> So, um, so I, I really like the, um, the, the self-compassion that's, um, that, that, that is able to simultaneously say to Sarah, oh, sweetie, yeah, you really want to be able to do it so that everybody likes what you're doing, don't you? And, and the self, and the, which, the, the denial that says, don't even think about it. <laughs> so um because uh, the self-compassion that just acknowledges what is yeah. it's there's just a real simplicity to it and it leaves us you know face to face with like how do we respond flexibly and how do we take action that allows the world to move forward a little bit towards oh having more more clear movements of anti-racism more clear movements that take a stand against the codification and solidification of injustice how do you recommend people get started with self-compassion is there like a how to how do you open up like the invitation to access it because it made yeah. so like impossible yeah. for some people or not right not right well, the first thing to do is to disentangle it from letting ourselves off the hook. Mm. That's the very first thing is to is to disentangle self-warmth and self-compassion from weakness um, or wobbliness. And to start to to unify our self-compassion with a fierce commitment to wanting the world to be a better place. And that's an interesting unification. And that's fun and inspiring, I think, for people to begin to catch a glimpse of. Um, and the second thing is, you had mentioned being embodied. You had mentioned that five years ago, you didn't necessarily know how to connect with your body. And I'm very curious, of course, about what these five years have have held for you that you've moved toward 
being more embodied. But the second thing is to begin to make these links between body sensations and emotions. And to be able to say, oh, my stomach really hurts. Yeah, I don't I don't want it to be true that the government created the redlining, you know. I don't want that to be true at all. And and to you know, to acknowledge the the grief and the rage and the fear and the and the um and the disgust that all gets mixed together as we begin to to really be embodied in this and start to feel what's what's true. Yeah. Did that did that yeah, start to open the door? <laughs> Worse. And I think I think that people allowing themselves to feel their like to, to even make that connection is sometimes like off limits on like like just to, to individual people or they feel like it yes, is well, like, if your insula yeah. is dark if nobody's ever talked to you yeah. about your body sensations being linked to emotions then your insula the part of the brain that holds social emotion words and links it with the amygdala that part of the brain is actually physically dark on fmris it's so interesting interesting so there's an awakening process that happens that's partly held in the story of your last five years and that that where we begin to wake up our our insulas and they start to help us yeah so we don't again you know the more we know about neuroscience the more self-compassion we have like mm -hmm. acknowledging the privilege blindness acknowledging the insula being dark it's like we start to make this deep sense to ourselves yeah i'm the privilege blindness i'm so fascinated by that that's so like i've never heard that before i didn't realize that it would make you know make sense but never thought about it in the context of it, it actually causing changes in the brain or parts of the brain to not develop that's that's fascinating how how can people find your book how can people best use your book um and how can they find you and yes yes the um the the handbook the anti-racist heart handbook for self-compassion and anti-racism is uh, you'll if you're interested in this book you'll love our website which is antiracistconversations.com that's roxy and my shared website and if you're thinking wow i really want to learn more about neuroscience then uh, and then bring it back to the anti-racism the, the on my homepage at sarahpayton.com there's a button that says start healing now and you can sign up for my email welcome series you'll receive a free chapter from my first book and be led through a bunch of free meditations videos and practice exercises explaining foundational concepts of self-compassion and how to change and heal the brain so two possibilities, depending on uh, if you're if you're like going, yes, this anti-racism stuff just lights me up so much. Go to the antiracistconversations.com and Roxy and I will be doing a class together. Ooh. Yeah, that starts, I think, in August. Yeah. Is it, okay. Is there yeah. so there will there be information about that on the there's information about that on the website? That's yeah. Amazing. That's amazing. Um, mailing list and social media it looks like instagram you're sarah payton author 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, Twitter at resonant self. I'm, I'm looking at your stuff here. I just want to make sure I'm saying it all. Correct. Yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. And it looks like you've got some YouTube and, and LinkedIn and all that. So we'll make sure to link all of that in the, in the show notes. Um, when does the book come out? August 29th. August 29th. Okay. Amazing. Well, I have already pre-purchased Mr. Manning's book. So now I'm going to need to go pre-purchase <laughs> your combined book. Uh, it, you know, it does all just sounds so amazing. And I love the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and, and sharing your experience and, and um, how, how you show up in the space um, and navigate it. Cause it, it can be, you know, like our identities shift the way, you know, they impact the way we show up in spaces, of course. And so thank you for sharing the the graceful way that you do that. Um, any last words for our listeners? Oh, I'm just so grateful that you have this podcast and this mission, Jill. And I'm so honored that I got to be part of it for a little minute. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.